Well, we often say around here that Christ's first coming, his incarnation, and his second coming in glory at the end are deeply related to one another. We don't have two discrete events, right? We have an event where the two things are locked into each other like two movements in some grand symphony. So locked together, and this is the really disruptive part, that the first advent is the second advent in advance. Advent, which we just finished, right? We, we, we heard this four times when we lit the candle. Advent means coming. And as such, it's very closely related to Epiphany. Today is Epiphany Sunday. Actually, the day of Epiphany is Wednesday, January 6th, which will be when the, the vast majority of the Christian tradition will be celebrating the Epiphany. We celebrate it the Sunday beforehand. Epiphany means manifestation or appearance. It's a shining forth of the light or the glory of Christ. So we could, instead of using the word Advent, we could speak of appearances or epiphanies. We could speak of the first epiphany and the second epiphany. And it turns out, in fact, that our text, which is the short New Testament lesson from the book of Titus, Titus chapter 2. Our text does just that. It speaks of two appearings, two epiphanies. But it does more than that. In doing that, it shows us the radical implications that the epiphany of Christ has for our lives. I hope to show that today. So we'll look at the text under three headings. They're there in the bulletin outline. Uh, Epiphany past, epiphany present, epiphany future. Or alternatively, we could look at this as grace... Godliness, glory. Two different, two different options for the titles. But first, the epiphany past. So Titus 2, verse 11, says this. For the grace of God has appeared. This is what has happened in the incarnation of the Son of God. It is an appearing. A coming, an unveiling, a presence. It's an epiphany. In fact... The Greek word here for appeared, the grace of God has appeared, is the word for epiphany. So, the grace of God has made its epiphany, its manifestation of its light, a manifestation of the glory spoken of by the prophets. We heard that in the Old Testament lesson from Isaiah 60, right? Arise, shine, because your epiphany has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. And the text says that this is an appearing or an epiphany of the grace of God. Now, I think this is of immense significance. It requires us to think about grace for a couple minutes. Um, The text tells us, then, that grace is not a thing. Like, sometimes we tend to think of grace as kind of a liquid. God gives us a little more. We need a little more. We go back, get a little more grace. Nor is grace... simply a disposition in God, that God has sort of changed his mind about us. Notice what the text says about grace. And this really is revolutionary in your thinking about the grace of God. It says that the grace of God has appeared. It has shown forth in the descent, then, in the steep descent of the Son into our humanity. So that the text virtually identifies grace with the Lord Jesus Christ. God's action in Christ through the Spirit. 
He is the embodied visibility of the grace of God. And so we, we learn right at the outset, grace is, is, is the living person of Christ. It's grace which stoops down, veiled and humble in the flesh of Jesus. Right? And the scripture repeatedly links this grace with the person of Christ, with the action of God in Christ. So, for instance, the very famous Trinitarian benediction at the end of 2 Corinthians 13, right? the, love, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God the Father and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Right? Their grace is linked to the person of Jesus Christ. So there's been a descent There's been an action. Grace has appeared. Grace has epiphanied itself in history. Even still, I think we have to fight against the tendency uh, to to sometimes think of grace as something maybe passive, very nice, but lacking potency. So that when we think of graciousness, we tend to think sweet, but generally harmless. Nothing could be further from the truth. This grace that Paul is speaking of in this text has made its epiphany in Christ, and thus its glorious grace, its mighty grace, triumphant grace, amazing grace, invincible grace, its apocalyptic grace. Like what has happened here is an eruption into time and space of the saving arm of God into the plight and the bondage and the thick darkness of the human condition. Only the incarnation of the Son of God, the epiphanying, the, the, the irradiating forth of the, of the glory of God in Christ, only that takes the full measure of the human condition and applies the remedy needed. So the second half of verse 11 tells us that this grace has appeared bringing salvation for all people. Right? It's a global faith. It's a Catholic faith. It's an international faith. And there's this great missionary impulse embedded in the incarnation itself. Right? Because in the incarnation, in the epiphany of Christ, his first appearing, we have God as the great missionary running into the far country after his children. And the text says this is salvation which has appeared to all people, for all people. Genuinely offered to all men of all nations. Male, female, slave, free, Jew, Greek, rich, poor, red, yellow, black, white. So, the salvation which God has brought us in Jesus Christ is universal in range, and it will be cosmic in triumph, this light that has come. So, here's the beauty of the the church calendar sometimes. You can kind of see the logic. Christmas means epiphany, right? And it leads to epiphany. Advent leads to the light of Christ going out to the nations. And that starts with the wise men, Gentiles from the East, which we heard about in the gospel lesson. It starts with them, and then this light begins its spread. Its healing rays go out to the ends of the earth. And that brings us, that's Epiphany past. That brings us to the the second point, which is Epiphany present. Or perhaps here, godliness would be an equally uh, apt title. So, in 2 Corinthians 4... The apostle tells us that the light of the glory of God, right, God, God, the triune God's own interior splendor, shining forth 
in the face of Christ, has, through the gospel, shown in your hearts. Like you are a living embodiment of the epiphany. The epiphany that has taken place in Jesus Christ has now broken forth. This shining is epiphany language. It's now present in us. And you might say, well, this is all well and good, but what does this have to do with us, our concrete, practical lives? And I'm going to get to that now, I think. Because if you look at the text, in verse 12, we are told that the grace of God, which has appeared, is actually active in doing something. You can see, if you look at the text, what it's doing. The grace of God, which has appeared, is training us or teaching us. This is actually a very famous Greek word that's been poured over by scholars for centuries. The word paideia. Paideia. It's the Greek word for teaching or instruction. It means training or education. It's the word that means education. It carries with it this idea of discipline and correction and formation. So the tutor in this school is the grace of God. Notice that. The grace of God has appeared educating us, training us, tutoring us. The grace of God, which has manifested itself in Jesus Christ, is the grace which trains and educates us for virtue. This is not a job the law can do. The law cannot produce righteousness. Notice this as well. It's not just that the tutor is gracious. Paul doesn't say that. It's that grace is the tutor. Now, I'm just going to stop here. And I'm not going to unpack this. But this has revolutionary implications for the way Christian education is done. In Christian schools, home schools, and classrooms. The grace of God has appeared educating us. The tutor in the school is grace itself. Think about that. And what what does this grace, this grace manifested in Christ, train us or educate us to do? Well, you can see it in verse 12, and I'm going to look at it under three headings. So these are three subheadings under the second point. I'm going to call them the time and the no and the yes. The time and the no and the yes. So we're trying to unpack what is grace teaching us? What's the method? The pedagogical method of grace, right? The first thing is the time in which this training is occurring. You can see this at the end of verse 12. In this present age. So, of course, the age here is not a, period, it's not a reference to one century or one time period. It's the whole sweep of human history between the first advent of Christ and his coming again in glory. Paul will sometimes call it the present evil age. Right? It is the time when light is shining and the night is far gone. And if you look at the text, when does this present age end? Well, it ends at the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Paul says that in the next phrase. But what I want you to hear is it's the very existence of this time created by the epiphany of Christ which enables something called Christian ethics. Or Christian education to arise. People think they can do Christian ethics without eschatology. They can't. You can do something else. 
you know, you can, you can do something about worldview or ideology or principles, but you can't do what Paul does. Paul thinks you have to know the time. The things that we're called to do in the text in this present age will be unnecessary in the age to come. So to characterize this time, it's what we call the already, not yet. It's the, what some New Testament scholars call the overlap of the ages. The new has arrived. The old is not completely abolished or destroyed. Light has appeared, but sin and death are not completely abolished. This is the time for Christian training, Christian discipleship in the school of grace. And knowing the time is the first orientation of class. It's sort of like orientation day. Here's the frame in which your Christian education takes place. It takes place when you have two realms in combat, two ages in tension. And there's just no way to drain this tension out. So that's the time. It's very important to Paul. He will say in Romans 13, uh, a famous first Sunday of Advent text at the end of Romans 13, where he will say, you then, knowing the time, cast off the deeds of darkness, put on the armor of light. So, secondly, let's look at the no. The text says, the grace of God is teaching us, training us, to renounce ungodliness. It's, a very, it's, expressed very, it's a very fierce sentiment in the text. The complete renunciation of everything contrary to godliness. This great 5th century church father, famous preacher named Chrysostom, said of this text, he said, See here the foundation of all virtue. He has not said avoiding, but denying or renouncing. Renouncing implies the greatest difference, the greatest hatred and aversion, Chrysostom says. Notice then, we are called to hate, to renounce, and to separate ourselves from all evil. And the text says from worldly passions, all the desires and lusts and appetites which are ordered to or determined by the current age. Of course, Christianity is a profoundly life-affirming faith. But we must not lose sight of the fact that in affirming the good, we must first renounce all that mangles the good creation of God. All that distorts us as human beings made in his image. So that means we must be educated. right? The word educate means to be brought out into the light. It's, a, it's kind of an epiphany word. Right? We must be educated graciously in this school of renunciation. This is how Christian virtue formation starts. Right? It can't be done without the epiphany. In the school of renunciation, and the first class in the school of virtue where the headmaster is the grace of God, the first class is entitled simply, no. That's it. That's the first class. There can be no other classes in the curriculum to people that can't pass this class. The orientation to the class of virtue is the time. The first class is simply no. Paul starts with, we must say no to ungodliness and disordered passions. Worldly, meaning passions of this age. So again, what, when we think of this, we have a tendency, I think because of the American culture perhaps, for, there could be lots of reasons for it, to, to tend to think uh, in some circles of, of this as a, just a, a list of things you're not supposed to do. 
Right? They're like, this is simply like a fundamentalist or a cultural uh, aversion to dancing or bad language or something like that. That's not what this is. Right? This renunciation is a disenfranchisement from the current order. Right? We, we start with the word no. And the no is against the world and against all of its passions. And so this no is a summons into the way of the cross into the life of self-denial, crucifixion, the life of mortification. We can make no progress in the school of virtue until we see that the gospel of God's grace pardons us, liberates us, reconciles us to God as his children. It does all of that. But with respect to our fallen humanity, it puts us in the crosshairs. We are in the crosshairs. We are overthrown by it and then reestablished in life. So that's the no. That's the no. Let's look at the yes, the positive, if you will. And it's in the middle of verse 12. We are by the same grace positively to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. So there's a no, and then there's a yes. And the yes is a comprehensive ethical vision. It's been pointed out that these three terms cover our relationship to ourselves, They cover self-government, right? Self-control. We are to live self-controlled lives. They cover our relationship to our neighbors. We are to live just or righteous lives. And they cover our vertical relationship to God. We are to live godly lives. Right? These these three terms together like this have probably inspired um, a very famous phrase. Um, You can find it in the English Book of Common Prayer. But you, you all have heard it here many times in our confessions of sin, where often at the end we ask something like that we might live a sober, righteous, and godly life. Right? You, guys, you guys know that cadence, right? A sober, a righteous, and a godly life. Well, sobriety goes to self-control here in this text. Righteous goes to being upright, and godly echoes godly. So the, the prayer is drawing on Paul's language here. So there's a lot that could be said about the yes. But I want to just focus on one of the words, and that's the term godly, the term godly. So when we hear the word godly, it's possible that we think something like stuffy or dull. Maybe you don't, and good for you if you don't, but um, we might think boring. We might think some kind of rule-keeping fanatic. What what I'm trying to suggest here is I think the word godly is tainted in our social imaginations. Um, But what I want to do is untainted. And and what I want to do is to to point out that it's a one-word summary of Christian ethical behavior. Just think about what it means. We who are creatures of dust, right? Frail, you know, feeble, sinners, lacking the basic constancy needed, right? We are to live as reflections of the triune God himself in the earth. Godliness is God-likeness. We are destined to be like God, right? The great Athanasius, right? God became a man so that men can become gods or like God. So we are to live then as images in the world of the divine goodness in human form. You are an icon of God in the world an image of Christ. So godliness then, we need to recover this, I think, is to be like God. It puts God at the center of of all Christian ethical pursuit. And thus it's a glorious, really an exhilarating 
ethical calling. It begins with renunciation, but it moves on to positive formation in virtue. So the same word of the gospel, the same word of grace, which calls us to say no, goes on and tells us to say yes. This is the, this is the mechanism of the Christian life. Right? It, it means we put off the old, we put on the new. We mortify the flesh, we are quickened and vivified unto life. We are slain and made alive, always and ever, yes and no, no and yes, no and yes. And you know what that means? That means the Christian life is a turbulent life. Right? Imagine some ethical teacher saying, here's what you're going to do to follow me ethically. I'm going to slay you repeatedly and raise you from the dead. You realize, well, I'm in for a ride then. Right? I'm in for a ride. And, and we tend to think, well, we can change morally and ethically without going through this trauma. It's a total delusion. There is no ethics without this no and yes. And this no and yes is crucifixion and resurrection from the dead. We tend to think, well, you know, I'm saved by grace. It's no big deal if I don't engage in this ferocious renunciation and this passionate pursuit of God-likeness. That's anguished and agonizing, and the progress is slow, right? We all know it's one step up, two steps back, three steps sideways. But this is a grievous misunderstanding, right, to think that way, of the logic of grace which has appeared. And here we can remember this. The tutor in the class, the grace of God which has appeared in Jesus Christ, the tutor asks us nothing that he hasn't already done, right? He has descended. Right. What, what is the appearing of Jesus in verse 11 other than one majestic divine renunciation? It's the son stripping himself, laying aside his glory, emptying himself, taking the form of a servant, renouncing the prerogative as one equal with God, considering it not even a thing to be grasped. And this renunciation of Christ is his no to grasping. And at the same time, it's a profound yes to the Father, right? Jesus' whole life, his long agonizing obedience to the Father is a, is a no, not my will, and a yes, but thy will be done. And so the very logic of the grace of God, the logic of epiphany, educates us into this school of godliness. So that's epiphany present. We have uh, the epiphany of Christ. Then we have the epiphany that is now presently working itself out in you, in I. And that brings me to the third, last point. um, Glory, or the epiphany future. The beginning of verse 13 says, We live in this present age as those waiting for our blessed hope. So Christmas thrusts us out of the old world. The grace of God has appeared but not fully into the new world. And thus the whole Christian life is a waiting for or a radical orientation to the future. We turn from idols, Paul says, to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven. Not merely acknowledge that his son is going to come from heaven, but to wait, to yearn for epiphany to be fully consummated. What we want to see is the light of Christ which has appeared and which we grasp by faith to give way to the light of glory, which we grasp by sight. Come back to this in a minute. But the church is then oriented toward the time when there is no night, when there is no need for sun or moon, when the glory of God and the Lamb are the light of the eternal city, when the epiphany has renewed and irradiated, right, 
The, the glory of God has filled, its, its effulgence has lit up the whole created order. This is what we want. Now, think of it. I find this helpful, so I'll share it with you. It's hard to grasp this because it's so alien to our day-to-day experience. But the, the, the key event in the Gospels is the transfiguration of Jesus. What the, what the disciples see on the Mount of Transfiguration is they see the risen, ascended, heavenly, transfigured Lord. He has a body full of splendor and light, right? A kind of brilliance that no launderer on earth could make, right? There's a, a, a lightning-like radiance to his countenance. Guess what? That's the kind of body you're going to have. That kind of irradiated splendor is going to light up the whole created order. That's what we're waiting for. But we have to be careful. We're not, the light that we're looking for is not just moral light or ethical light. It is, a, it is transfiguring light and it starts with the human beings, men and women. It starts with the priests of creation. The head of creation, Christ himself, already exists in this transfigured splendor. And that glory is what the church is waiting for. So this means that renunciation and godliness are facets of waiting for this blessed hope. So, back to the school metaphor. If the first class in the school of virtue is entitled simply no, we might say that what's the first question to be asked in the school? The first question is, what are you waiting for? You'll notice the word waiting in the text. Or what time is it? Right? It's the time of waiting for what Paul calls the blessed hope. Notice the article. It's the blessed hope. The church does not have two hopes. She doesn't have three hopes. She has one hope. And that hope is blessed, delightful, full of joy, full of God's covenant blessings. So Christian ethics is from beginning to end the ethics of yearning. The ethics of yearning for immortal light and glory of the new creation. I suggest you could probably go through your whole Christian education and never hear this. But it is clearly true. You know, it's a commonplace in the fathers of the church, in the, in the Christian tradition, to point out that all the desires of our heart are for heaven. Right? He has set eternity in our hearts. Right? The book of Ecclesiastes. Or as I like to put it, if you think about it with prayer, if we pray for, you know, so much of our prayer is driven by the fact that we're contingent beings. We're dying. We're, 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 we have sick people, and we have dying people, and we have people who did already die, and we have people that are unemployed and people that are broken in this way or that way. All of these prayers that we pray for them are wonderful, but they are provisional. They're going to eventually get better and then die anyway. Right? So at some point, what we're actually yearning for when you think about it, and I think anyone who thinks on their own life understands this, we want to be beyond probation. We want a, we want a time where we don't have to worry that one of our kids is going to get hurt or something really bad is going to happen to this person or that person. Or, or this, you know, we, it's amazing how we have this capacity to find the next thing to be concerned about. You know? And it doesn't stop. I remember Pastor Vance doing this. For, for a decade or so up here talking about how, you know, this stuff, this, this kind of a concern doesn't stop when your kids get to be 20 or 25 or 30. It's just always there. Now I, now I realize this. I'm like, yeah, there's, there's, all, there's all these parental concerns. What you really want is yourself, your children, your friends, your loved ones to be beyond probation, beyond threat, right? To, to transcend the fragility of life. 
Right? You want to transcend the fragility, which means you want immortal glory. A lot of people don't think they do, but they do. Just take, just take their request. This is why Paul, when he prays for his churches, so frequently, I mean, not in every prayer, but regularly sprinkles his prayers with this, so that. You know, I pray that you'll be pure and blameless, he says to the Philippians, so that you can stand on the day of Christ. Right? You will be my joy and crown on the day of Christ. He's constantly praying for the church, but he recognizes that those prayers are oriented toward this day. So virtue is a preparation for the future, right? For, for the blessed hope of communion with God in glory, which in the latter half of verse 13 is called the appearing, and that's, that's epiphany, that word is epiphany again, of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now notice something startling here. In the space of this much text, three verses, Paul has used the word epiphany twice. The same Greek word. It's translated appearing in your Bible. I mean, you would think you wouldn't need the second one, right? Because the grace of God has appeared. Light has poured forth into the creation. Just as the prophet said, your light is here. The brightness come. The kings come to your brightness. Wonderful. The light's here. But Paul says, yeah, the light's here. But you're still in the present age. And you're waiting for this other light, which is the second epiphany of Christ. This is epiphany future. So... The grace of God is training us, right? But it's training us for an end, and that end is not simply an ideal. I think this is one of the difficulties with a lot of Christian training of young people is like you set some sort of ideal character in front of them. Even if that ideal character is the moral qualities of Jesus himself, right? You you have some sort of ideal character, and then you train the person to imitate those virtues. But what's missing is that the end for which Christian virtue is inculcated in us, is the end of history. It's the, it's the resurrection of the dead, and the restoration of all things, especially mankind, in the epiphanic light, the epiphanic radiance, the transfigured splendor of Christ himself. That's what virtue in your soul is the beginning of. Right? You're being prepared to be a body of light. So again, notice in the text, notice the repetition of the word appeared in verse 11 and in verse 13. He whose divinity was veiled in the appearance by grace shall be revealed and unveiled fully as God and Savior in his appearing in glory. So they're locked together, as I said at the beginning. Epiphany past gives birth to epiphany in us, which stretches out toward the consummate epiphany. So what are we to do? Well, we give thanks to God. That's the first thing we always do, is we stop and we give, give glory to God and praise to God because grace has appeared. Light has been poured forth into the world. And education in virtue that that grace brings is underway in us. And that appearing guarantees the hope of glory. So rejoice. Rejoice then. The joyful transfiguring of light, the epiphany of Christ has arrived. Amen. Amen.